Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. With those excerpts slash definitions of philosophy and value in mind, We'll come back into natural law ethics and I'll read an excerpt. I actually have three excerpts on this. We'll start with just one and then maybe we'll go through the other two. So the first one says, quote, and this is in regard to natural law ethics. This philosophy maintains that there is, in fact, an objective moral order within the range of human intelligence to which human societies are bound in conscience to conform and upon which the peace and happiness of personal, national, and international life depend, unquote. So philosophy as the fundamental nature of things, uh, and he's making the case for an objective moral value. So again, I feel like there's a bridge here between the domains of the objective and subjective we typically consider you know value to be very subjective but he's making the case here that at least moral value um can in fact be objective yes and he's kind of he's kind of jumping to the conclusion without yet providing the logical proof to it right so right mm. now he's just saying that in theory it's possible right if we can use reason to find a, a um, like a set of rules that govern every, do lead to predictable and and reliable causal relationships that do harm and that lead to destruction and uh, a or yeah that, that that's one part of it and the other is again that in human action. At least, it at least presupposes that there is some value, right? And now he kind of makes that argument that, again, you, you, or when you look on the, in the, for the question of morality, when you look at it with the praxeological viewpoint, then you only have a handful of options of how things can play out. Right. So you have a limited set of options that we're looking at now. And now we can 
um, use the, the reasoning of um, uh, affidation through negation, right? So, so we see which things are not correct, which are not reasonable, and whichever is left over and whichever is reasonable, right, is then the, the correct, right? So th th this is kind of jumping the gun already of, uh, of how he lays out this theory of liberty in, in part two. Um, but the, the idea is, is that when we can use, or because reason is objective, mm -hmm. when we can find moral principles and we can prove them via reason, mm -hmm. then there are objective moral principles. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so all of that's laid out more in the second half of the book, you're saying that he spells that out. Well, it's it's the the big part of the the book. It's part two. It starts at page twenty nine and goes all the way till one hundred fifty five. Oh, okay. So I'm I'm only about halfway through the book right now. So I'm probably just partially through that. Oh, oh, oh you know, and in, in our conversation right now, we're, we're roughly at page seventeen. <laughs> we still got a long way to go. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, okay, so yeah, again, getting back to that where I said. The natural law ethic is saying that the goodness, goodness is whatever enhances what we are naturally equipped to do. We have said that humans are naturally social animals. I don't think there's a lot of dispute about that. So then goodness would be anything that enhances our sociality or ability to have cooperation and intercourse with one another. Um, so then the... There is whatever objectively contributes to that would then be some, an objective moral good. Yes. Okay. That sort of makes sense to me. I'm going to read the second excerpt now. It says, quote, but a social order is not possible unless man is able to conceive what it is and what its advantages are and also conceive those norms of conduct which are necessary to its establishment and preservation, namely, respect for another's person and for his rightful possessions, which is the substance of justice. But justice is a product, is a product of reason, not the passions. And this was in, um, he was refuting uh, Hume's earlier point that reason is a slave of the passions and he's saying that justice is a product of the of the reason of reason not of the passions so this reminded me my best friend childhood uh his father used to have, had this quote and he said that respect is the ultimate currency that was always his his quote <laughs> he'd hammer into our heads and now i couldn't help but see that here it's like okay to have this ideal society, and society is a bad word, uh, an ideal structure of human civilization, let's say, that actually calls out the most goodness in man being his fittedness to his fellow man, right? That we need first and foremost respect for each other's person and rightful possessions, which we could condense into property as we laid out last time. like. You are your own property. 
the things in nature you infuse your time, effort, skills, talents, et cetera, with become your rightful possessions, become your property. So is that what this boils down to? This boils down to just almost like a common, maybe not common sense, maybe an intuitive respect for one another that I think most people have in standard social engagements. We kind of have this intuitive respect towards one another, but clearly history is, you know, marred with violations of that respect, but uh, still seems like there's some semblance of it today. Yes, I, I think so too, that most people follow natural law morals most of the time. Uh, at least when they have the choice between action that is moral, like, like a conscious choice, um, when they're aware of, of what they're doing, when, when they're, um, uh, you know, there's a difference between nescience and ignorance, right? Nescience is to not have available information uh, and therefore doing something wrong. And ignorance is having all available information, yet despite that, doing something that is counterproductive, right? Doing something that, that mm. harms, that's ignorance. So when you, most people are nationally following natural law, right? Um, what is that term? I'm sorry. Nations. Beautiful words, uh, unfortunately lost in, in the English language, but it's so important. And oh. the difference between to ignore something like an mm. ignorance and uh, to, uh, to be nescient about something like in nescience oh. and to not have available information, key differentiation, very, mm. very diff different. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We typically use, or I typically understand at least ignorance as not having the available information, but it's, it's it ignorance. Ignoring. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, I'm trying to think of a word for not, yeah, I don't know that we have a word for not having the available information or just not knowing, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, but you know, the, this is again where Rothbard builds on top of the magnum opus uh, that is uh, praxeology in, in economics, right? That describes the, the benefits of division of labor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because of diminishing marginal returns in human actions, mm -hmm. right? When you when you focus on the task that you are marginally best at, you know the highest value, right? Once right. you focus on that and do this, right? And you let other people focus on the task where they are marginally best at, like to to let them try to to strive for the highest ideal. Right, the the most valuable thing that they could be spending their time and attention on, uh, and then later you trade, right? Then you have more goods than you otherwise would have if you would have divided your attention into doing both of the tasks, right? right? So this is again something that can be discovered by reason, and once you understand it, it it does not make sense to be an isolated individual. Right. right. It, it, it does make sense to collaborate with others peacefully uh, in a free market society because you will be better off. You will have more capital at your disposal to satisfy the problems that you have. Right. Right. That's fascinating. OK, so. That's a good way to look at it, because the division of labor is almost like a tool or a, um, I've been talking to John Verveke recently. He distinguishes between technologies and psychotechnologies, psychotechnologies being more of this non-corporeal, you know, cognitive system, 
some mode of systemizing cognition that is useful. Literacy is an obvious one. Numeracy is another. The division of labor is kind of another, right? It's like, here's how you would structure society so that everyone is better off, literally. But it's connected. So that's object. That's an objectively useful tool. We become more efficient through the division of labor than we do operating in isolation. But it is directly connected to the subjective domain of value, where you're saying it allows, it, it accomplishes this objective result by allowing each individual to go uh, most deeply into their marginal uh, advantage, which is what they you know value, the, where they can create the most value. I don't know if it's necessarily what they value the most, but it's where their skill set allows them to create the most value for others. And so you're the, the, what I'm getting, what I'm sensing here is that we're actually transmitting these or assimilating these individual value structures into something provably useful through proof of work, right? It's like put all these people to work uh, under an economy with division of labor and they optimize for the highest value for others in a way that's objectively useful to everyone. They they can optimize on what's most valuable for themselves, mm. right? Out of all the opportunity costs, right? The, yes. the, the things that you could be spending your time on, instead of you know, like you know, preparing a steak and cooking dinner, yes. you know, which which costs time, and it it might not be the most valuable thing that you could be doing right then and there, right? Because maybe building a cathedral is more meaningful. Right? Right. So then going out and building that cathedral and letting someone else cook the steak for you and serve it to you on, in a restaurant so that you can quickly eat and focus yeah. less time and, uh, on, on cooking, which you are marginally worse at than yes. building cathedrals. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's this, again, uh, under the division of labor economy, each individual then is maximizing their freedom as well, effectively, right? We're, we're, we are decreasing the cost of living for the most people in a free market under the division of labor. So therefore, each individual ha- is able to spend the least amount of time satisfying their basic needs, food, shelter, water, et cetera. And then they are free to choose what is most what act- action is most valuable to them. And to your point, it wouldn't necessarily be what others value the most, but it would at least give them the freedom to do that, right? They would know that, hey, maybe people really like my painting. I'll spend some time doing that, and then I'll spend some time rock climbing. So it's sort of, it, it just, this, again, the sense I'm getting here is like work is that bridge, that thermodynamic bridge between subjective reality of value and the objective reality of, uh, I guess, prices and economization. Yes. And again, this has a very deep moral um, impact because it's, it's again, to honk down on, on Jordan Peterson again with, with his tale of, of the Pinocchio story, right? Where Geppetto wishes upon a star uh, to, uh, to basically meaning to set a really high goal, mm-hmm. right? uh, something nearly unreachable right? that his wooden puppet uh, turns conscious. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, that's that's an extremely high high value, right? And that that kind of, the moral of the story is that you should aim high, you mm-hmm. know, and with division of labor, you can aim higher. Right. And that is intrinsically morally valuable. 
Yes, 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 yes. So this true at the individual level, but then it becomes, there's almost like a non-linear truth to it for the collective. Because the more you subdivide labor, the more wealthy the economy is becoming, the more free everyone's becoming, the more they're able to pursue their own individual, what, what's most valuable to them. Yes, but you see the division of labor again is it's it starts with individual preferences, mm -hmm. right? But it is lived out in a interactive society, mm. right? So mm -hmm. you can you can only like my in the previous example, I can only go to the restaurant and buy a steak if the cathedral that I'm building is actually valued by others mm -hmm. and they pay me for it right. right, in some form so that yes. I get paid for the work that I do somewhere yes. else and then take the money and spend it on the consumption good or production good that yes. I want to have at that moment. Yes. Right? So it, it, it's division of labor presupposes that it's best to focus on a task where you're good at and where where others where others value this right because yes. division of labor means no more barter economy right where where you where you provide valuable work for the people who actually um uh, produce the goods that you want right instead you provide a service somewhere else receive money and then give on the money mm -hmm. in division of labor mm -hmm. right so um you you get to focus on higher goals where Maybe only a, a small minority of people really, really, really value what you're doing and then pay you a lot, right? Mm -hmm. to, to use that money than to spend it on the things that you value, right? right? Which is having your time consumption reduced by someone else cooking for you. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so in a free market under the division of labor, you are incentivized actually that it seems like it's coming out of two sides here because on one side you're incentivized to take action according to what others value, right? That's the price signal, right? People are demand for your product or services, what you're best at. So you have some incentive to go and take that out. But on the other side of it, it's also because everyone else is doing that in this interactive society, the cost of everything is coming down. So you, although you have an incentive to maybe go and provide this good or service that other market actors value, you have the freedom to choose whether you want to work or not, right? You may want to, you may want to do something else or leisure or whatever, maybe. And so exactly. The, and this, this is also a confirmation of the previous example, right? Where, where someone warns someone else of danger, like a poisonous mushroom, right? Because you realize that when that person dies, he is no longer in the division of labor and I will need to do some work that he otherwise could have done. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a great point. It's so then this whole, this, this tool or whatever you want to call the division of labor, this um, method of, of organizing ourselves, it's optimizing to create excess productivity or, or capital, right? We're, we're, it's, we're creating greater results with less effort, right? The more deeply we divide labor, the higher the result we achieve with the same level of effort effectively. 
Yes, and this goes even deeper than just division of labor, but more basic as as trade, right? And and mm -hmm. voluntary exchange, right? When when we trade, uh, you know, my money for your stake, that means that I value your stake higher than my money, yes. and you value my money higher than my stake. Yes. So when we trade, we are both better off. We have achieved, you know, we're we're a bit closer to the star that we've wished upon. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, this this is morally better for both of us. And th this is an objectively verifiable, rational statement that I'm making. Yes. Yes. I love the analogy, actually, to setting the sight on a star. And here's why. Because the other thing that's happening here is so we're, we're increasing aggregate productivity. Right? The whole world becomes more productive than it would be if everyone was trying to provide for their own ends without trade. Another way to say that is we are overcoming... The, we're overcoming scarcity, right? And the, the 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 baseline for economic scarcity is human time, right? The reason scarcity exists is because we have a finite life. If you had an infinite life, scarcity wouldn't be as much of an issue. So productivity is overcoming the scarcity of time, right? We're moving closer to timelessness in a way. And this is where I think it connects to religious traditions. And the star itself, like, setting your sight on a star that the star is, you know, it's shining, it's light. Light is that which transcends time totally, right? A photon is unaffected by time. It moves at the speed of light. Time does not affect the photon. So it's like, we're, we're trying to, that's like the highest aim you could set. Yeah. Not only is it a symbolic yeah. moral aim, but in a physics sense, like we <laughs> want our productivity. We want to be as productive as a photon to the point where time doesn't affect <laughs> us at all. Um, yeah. That's a great analogy. And it's freedom, right? It's all about freedom. We're creating more freedom through voluntary exchange and interaction objectively than we possibly can through any form of involuntary exchange, you know, which is theft, war, all of these things, um, or any imposed structure whatsoever. Yes. And one additional great benefit of division of labor is that it benefits even the lowest people in the hierarchy and the competence hierarchy. Mm -hmm, right? right. And that is, that is important, right? Yes. If, if the top always win, then the bottom will stop playing. Yes. Uh, so we need a, a game where the bottom uh, win too, right? The, where the lowest guys win. And that's again, the beauty of division of labor. Yeah. If you have someone who is, you know, uh, Robert is a better writer than I am, and he is a better, uh, uh, I don't know, cook than I am, right? So he can do both things better than I can, mm -hmm. um, but he is a marginally better writer than a cook, right? Mm. And I'm a pretty shitty cook, but I'm an even worse author, right? So uh, I'm worse in both. I'm lower in the competence hierarchy uh, than Rob on, in all accounts, right? He's better than I am, period. But still, when we cooperate and he focuses on being an author and I focus right. on cooking, we both win. We're both right? so, better off, yeah. And, and this is, again, yet, an, yet another show that this is a, a moral system, right? This is a game that we can play in the long run. Yes, 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 yes. It's, it's so important. Um, and even if you are at the very bottom of the socioeconomic hierarchy and you just make a fixed wage, right, you're uh whatever a janitor and you just make a fixed wage so long as the division of labor is progressing your cost of living is declining 
right? So even if you're not really improving your skill set, all other things being equal, you're still getting richer just by virtue yeah. of everyone else doing their thing. Yeah. All, you know, 30 years ago, how, how much do you have to pay to get a decent computer? Right? Mm -hmm. and, right. and how much does your, how much computing power does your fridge have nowadays? <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's the beauty of, of technology and of a free market process where everyone is incentivized to shoot for the highest goal and where everyone has a chance to succeed at that. And even when you fail, uh, that there are consequences to failure, right? Mm -hmm. So there, you have skin in the game, but you're not outed for, for life. You can always yes. come back up again. Yes. Right? No, it's, it's an excellent point. And, oh, yeah, and, and further, if you fail as an individual, as the collective market economy succeeds, you still win. Exactly. You, yes. So even if you go all in, skin in the game as an entrepreneur, your idea blows up, you have a total loss you still start over from a higher basis, right? Because the cost of living in theory in a pure free market environment would have declined from the time you started to the time you blew up. And not only that, but like the failure, this gets into the concept of anti-fragility. It's indispensable to the fragility of the individual is instrumental and indispensable to the anti-fragility of the whole market. Because when you fail as an entrepreneur, other market actors are observing, hey, that strategy did not work at this time and place. Let me try something else. So it's learning, right? That information is feeding back into the marketplace and, and other market actors are learning through the failures of others. One nice Bitcoin analogy to this is right that we're all crazy fanatics who spend a whole bunch of time educating other people about Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? We could have spent that time to earn a whole bunch more fiat mm -hmm. and then buy a whole bunch more Bitcoin. We all would have probably have a, a much larger stack, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we, we sacrifice that, right? Mm -hmm. And we're actually a loss-making entrepreneur, right? We have an opportunity cost that would be much more profitable and we're not taking it up upon, right? That's, that's yeah. uh, uh, not a profitable entrepreneur, right? You, you could have been more profitable, right? right. But... If the outcome of your educational effort is that more people understand the value of sovereignty and the, the use that money is to society and the opportunity that Bitcoin represents, yes. and the more people use Bitcoin, the more valuable your even small stash is going to be. Right? right. So all this, all the amount of energy that you could have concentrated in the fiat world and then bought Bitcoin, yeah. Maybe a rational strategy, yes, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, you can sacrifice this because the sacrifice of spreading the the uh, awareness of truth and reason mm -hmm. is worth it in the long run. Yes, yeah, that's that's an interesting interesting perspective, and it's it's um, it calls to mind like writing. <laughs> writing is so painful and the benefits are so non-obvious and non-local and distant. Um, but it's deeply rewarding for the same. It's almost like the time preference thing where you're not getting an immediate gain, um, but there's this huge long-term gain. And the other, it's that war, that little microcosm, I think of Bitcoin, you know, us sacrificing whatever to educate people. That's what the whole world could look like more if we're in a, in a truly free market with deeply divided labor, because then everyone, most 
more people, I'm not going to say everyone, more of the population would be benefiting from this freedom to go and pursue what they found meaningful to themselves. So it's not only are we becoming more economically efficient, but I think the actual ends that individuals would pursue, they'd be more meaningful to them, which would enable them to do better work and contribute to the world in more meaningful ways. So it's, there's a quantitative and qualitative aspect, qualitative aspect to the, the improvement of division of labor. Yeah, there, there, there really is, you know, and, and the, the potential of, of this is, is, is staggering. Yeah. Really this, the, you know, the, the seen and the unseen, where could we have been by now if, if humans would have valued property <laughs> rights? Yeah. I mean, that's very tough to say. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I'm going to read this third excerpt from Rothbard and he says, quote, if then the natural law is discovered by reason from the quote unquote, basic inclinations of human nature, absolute, immutable, and of universal validity for all times and places, unquote, it follows that the natural law provides an objective set of ethical norms by which to gauge human actions at any time or place. Exactly. If we can discover causal consequences of action by reason, mm-hmm. then anytime we act, these laws apply. Yes. And since we're human, we act all the time. Therefore, these laws apply all the time to humans that are rational. Right. So, the, yeah, the, the, um, there are objective, what he says here, absolute immutable laws effectively that apply to human nature. Um, and he, exactly. he lays out some of these as well, I believe. I'll read another quote of his here. He says, in fact, the legal principles of any society can be established in three alternate ways. First, by following the traditional custom of the tribe or community. Second, by obeying the arbitrary ad hoc will of those who rule the state apparatus. Or thirdly, by the use of man's reason in discovering the natural law. In short, by slavish conformity to custom, by arbitrary whim, or by use of man's reason. Unquote. And this is what I meant in the past with the, uh, the, the uh, you know, you, you have three possible options. I, I cannot think of a, of a fourth option to come up with, with a universal principle like that. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and then you go through it. How, how would a society look like if that were the case? Like, what if we only uh, um, did actions that in the past were moral, right? There would be no innovation, basically. There would right. be just a, a decline, so to say. Right? And um, it, yeah, it, it it would just hinder human potential and possibility. Uh, like so many, so much would no longer be possible. Basically, uh, then if we have a uh, a a group of people dictating what morality is, and that other people have to follow this, right? So a a dictatorial statement of which values are to be um, pursued. What mm-hmm. should be your highest end? If I get mm-hmm. to dictate that for you, then we have a master and a slave relationship. 
mm-hmm. right? And this is no longer a universal law that applies to every human equally, mm-hmm. which is what we are looking for. So this method falls out of scope. It, it does not solve the problem that we want to solve. Uh, and then the only other option that is left, and therefore a reasonable option, like the reasonably correct option, <laughs> is that you can discover morals uh, via reason. Yes. Yeah. So, and th- I mean, this could almost be synonymous with f- freedom, right? Leaving people free to use their reason to to determine this direction of law. Right. I've read this is a great piece by um, Kinsella where he talks about um, laws that are discovered versus laws that are, I think, legislated was the term he used. Man-made. Man-made. Yeah. So one would be more like more like the Moses um, story, right, where he observes the interactions of people for, I think, 40 years. And then he says, hey, here are the meta patterns. Here are the Ten Commandments, which you need to follow, which resolve all of this. It's a discovery. It's a market discovery process, right? You're observing these exchanges across time and something emerges from that. Um, And this is not what we have in the world today. We have this. I mean, I guess we do have legal discovery in some instances. We do have this English common law tradition, but then we have especially like the legal monopoly protections around the central bank, all of that is forcefully imposed. There's no discovery there taking place at all. Yes. And, and to that point of, of the meta narrative and, and finding a pattern in that, uh, one nice example to think about it, like what are intuitive things like intuitive actions or actions that people would intuitively find immoral. Mm -hmm. Um, I would argue that is murder, rape, physical assault, uh, theft, um, trespassing, you know, breaking in your home, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, breaking a contract. Uh, I, I would say these are things like that are bad, mm-hmm. but the thing that is common among all of these bad actions is do not steal, do not right. take the do not unjustly take the property of someone else, or in other words, do not initiate aggressive force against the justly acquired property of another individual. Right. That is the one rule. That is the, the, the meta God, the God of the gods, Mm. right? It's, it's the highest principle to follow because when you follow that principle, there are, well, there, there stands nothing in the way of human flourishing. Mm. Right. 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 So maybe we, would you be comfortable diving into the concept of justly acquired property? Because this was something in the book that really was a lot to take in. I mean, there's, a, there's kind of a lot of specifics around it. Um, but maybe you could just give us an introduction to the, the Rothbardian perspective on the just acquisition of, of property. Yes. And maybe as a preamble, let's have this scenario where you see someone walking on a street and he has a, a backpack, right? And then someone comes up to him and rips the backpack and takes it and runs away. Mm-hmm. Now, was that theft? And 
the the honest answer is we don't know. Mm-hmm. There's still information missing, right? Did the first person who had the backpack did he actually own the backpack, right? Mm. Or maybe this was actually a previous theft, right? That this guy who has the backpack right now stole it previously from the guy and now he's taking it back, mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden, the scenario is no longer a theft, but it's it's justice, right? It's it's mm-hmm. someone taking back the property that is justly theirs, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the the concept of just acquisition of property is is important. And here there are again three different options. Um, or again, so a, a preamble. We're talking here about scarce resources, mm-hmm. right? So physical goods uh, that have a potential uh, for conflict over who can use these scarce resources. Mm-hmm. Right? Either person A carries the backpack or person B. Mm-hmm. Right? They cannot both have it at the same time. Um, that's what makes it potentially rivalrous. Mm-hmm. Right? And now either everyone, or sorry, either nobody owns an, anything. Nobody has the property, the, the just right to use a scarce resource at any point in time. That's the first possible scenario. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work because we would be dead instantly. Right. <laughs> right. So th- that's not reasonable. That's false. Right. The, the second option is that um, some people control the resources and, and, and others do not. Um, like, uh, for example, specifically in the example of your body, right? Who, uh, who owns your body? Is it you or uh, is it like, do I own Robert's bar- uh, body or does he own his own body? Mm-hmm. Um, and here we have again, that master and slave relationship, right? Mm-hmm. If, if someone owns the, the scarce resources of someone else, well, they, they are their, their slaves, right? If you can no longer choose how to spend your bodily energy, mm-hmm. right, where to focus your time and attention, how to act, when that choice is no longer up to you, you're not a human a sovereign individual, you're a slave. Right. And right. that is not the natural state of things. Um, so then the, the, the third option is basically uh, that the individual who first uses a previously unused resource has the just right to use it. That's right. basically the homesteading principle. Yeah. And that starts with your body, right? Uh, at the time of birth, maybe even before, um, you know, you, you magically this, this body appears and all of a sudden your consciousness gets zapped into this body and you are the one that uses this body uh, and nobody else does. Right. right. So this this is the, the homesteading of the body itself. And then also you can homestead scarce resources around you when nobody else is using them. Right. So you're in a forest and you pick up an apple and you eat it. Right. Or, or mm-hmm. you cut down a, a wood and you uh, you cut down a tree and you build a boat. You know, these you are intermingling your spirit, so to say, via your labor into these previously unowned resources and thereby create a just claim to use them. Right. And the second way that you can acquire property other than homesteading it, being the first one to use it, is that the person who first uses it voluntarily gives you the right to use it. Mm-hmm. And this is by contractual agreement of a property rights transfer. Mm-hmm. Right? And here again, 
it does not mean possession. It means the just used the, 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 the just right to use the property, the scarce good, right? The, right. The, the power of choice to be the one that ultimately makes the choice of how that scarce good gets to be applied uh, in this reality, right? Um, and therefore, any property right contract is not necessarily handing over the possession of a good, but it's handing over the the, the right to use that good and to be the one that makes the ultimate decision of where to put it. Mm -hmm. right? So these are the three options. Nobody owns anything. Everyone owns everything. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. Oh, wait, we didn't talk about everyone owns everything. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work because then for every single action that you would have to take in your own body, for every move that you make, you would have to ask the permission of everyone <laughs> on this Honors, entire planet, yeah. maybe yeah. even throughout time, right? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't work, right? So that falls out too. Then some people own other people, doesn't work either because yeah. that's not a universal ethic. Uh, and it's also not true. It's not how things are. Yeah. I cannot control Robert's body. Um, and so the only thing that's left over is individual private property rights, justly acquired either via homesteading or yes. the voluntary contractual arrangement uh, to move the property rights to a different person. Right. Interesting. Yeah. There's um, so the the goods themselves, physical goods, they're rivalrous, which I guess is just uh, another way of saying scarce. Right. Is there's more demand for the good than there is the good. Therefore, there's. Um, there's insufficient supply to satisfy demand. So there's a market price for the good and you can't, it can't be in two places at once, I guess you would say. Yes. And there's a bit of a nuance here with the rivalrousness aspect mm -hmm. right, or the exclusivity mm -hmm. and the abundance, the quantity, mm -hmm. right? These are two different aspects and you can have goods that are rivalrous. Um, and I would argue that this is enough to justify as a scarce good. Um, but they are so uh, for example abundant so this is air you know if if we're in the in the you know outside in in the real yeah. world plenty of air around right yes. it's it's abundant right but you realize that it is rivalrous and that it is scarce when mm -hmm. you go underwater scuba diving and you have one bottle but two divers uh, all of a sudden okay. these two guys have to fight over who gets to breathe the air right, right, right? right. that shows you that air is a scarce resource right that is just in our natural state abundant and right. as soon as a scarce resource is abundant, you don't need to worry about resource allocation because right. anyone who would potentially like to use this resource to achieve his highest value gold, to, yeah. to remove his uneasiness, to solve his problem, whoever wants to do that can, right? And nobody needs to sacrifice and right. not fulfill his highest goal. Because there's but more supply than demand, basically. Exactly. That yeah. makes a, a scarce good abundant, yes. but it's still a scarce good. Right. Scarce in an absolute universal sense. Exactly. And, yeah. and the opposite side of that is a non-scarce good, a non-rivalrous good. Mm. Uh, and this is, for example, information. Mm. Right? Uh, it's, it's not matter. Right? It's information. It's the pattern. The mm -hmm. pattern is a non-scarce good. It's, it's still a good. It's valuable. It's useful. It's good to have, literally. Mm -hmm. Why? Because pattern are useful. Mm -hmm. And again, it's, this is at the core of what humans do, right? Pat yes. They're pattern recognition, recognition machines. Yes. Right? So the information is highly useful for us. Yes. And the beautiful thing is that we can share information without sacrificing it. 
the right. pattern of the words that I formulate right now, I can pass on to you, but I yes. still retain that pattern, that knowledge of the pattern. Right, right, and right. So this is a fundamentally non-rivalrous and non-scarce good. Gotcha. So that when, so if it's something's non-excludable, that's when something, one person can generate something, a word or a phrase, everyone else can copy it and benefit from it, but it, there's no cost to the original person that generated it. Um, there, there was a cost for generating it, right? Because I need to spend my time and attention oh, right now yes, to formulate yes. these words. Sorry, but no harm done to the individual, I guess. He, he did not lose anything. Yes, right, right. right. Th that's basically it. They're, 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 I, I did not sacrifice the enjoyment of this good, of this yes. non-scarce information pattern good. Yes. Right? Yes. I, I can still use it. I still have it in my mind. You know, maybe dementia is actually interesting to consider here in this point, but that's probably a different uh, conversation. Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. This reminds me of, I think this is a, a Buddhist phrase where, uh, I think this is actually talking about the power of love, where it said you can, one candle can light a thousand others without diminishing its flame. And it's kind of the same with information that you, you could just, you know, it's... Um, it's copyable, it's a, but not exchangeable, right? Like it's just being replicated when you send it out. Yeah, and I, th I think this has also been said by, by Washington and, and some of the founding fathers. And Ludwig von Mises points this out too in, in human action. The, mm -hmm. the power of ideas, precisely because of that reason that patterns can be shared without being sacrificed. Mm. That, that changes the game, right? That, uh, and that's an interesting point. Economics is about the allocation of scarce resources only, mm -hmm. right? And this means that property rights only exist in scarce resources. Yes. It does not make, the concept of property rights does not make sense for non-scarce resources. Right. Because right. The, the theory of property rights defines clearly who has the ultimate decision power of how to use a certain scarce resource right. that when the one person uses it, someone else can no longer use it. That's the whole reason why we need property rights. Yes. So when we have these goods that are magically non-scarce and that anyone can have them without anyone else not having it, right? Yeah. property right is not needed. In fact, enforcing a concept like intellectual property right onto non-scarce resources is not just utmost tyrannical, but it, 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 incredibly wasteful. Like we right, have this, right, this, right. this crazy gift of information and patterns that can benefit, benefit anyone at a massive scale. You know, and with things like the internet, communicating these patterns becomes easier and cheaper all the time. And it's a, obviously a, a unheard of benefit, right? So the, the restrainment of who can use a certain pattern based on intellectual property rights is as fundamentally anti-human as it can get. Yeah, yeah, we're it's restricting uh, reason, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so that's that's really interesting points there. And then the other one, um, as far as the different modes of ownership, right? Where master-slave relationship or everybody owns everything, which I think Aristotle said something like when everyone owns everything, nobody takes care of anything. Like there's no, there's no responsibility element to that. And then so the third possibility is 
individual ownership, which all of a sudden you have rights and responsibilities in the asset or in the, in the property. Yes. And, and the, the right is the power to choose how to use the scarce resource, the responsibility, and that's free choice. The responsibility is to live with the deterministic consequences of your action Mm. and the reality that you might have spent your scarce resource in a goal that was not the highest star that you could have potentially reached for. Right. Right. The opportunity cost was higher than the actual revenue that, that you got. You could have done better. Right, right, right. Yeah, this, and this is that this is skin in the game, right? The balance exactly. of incentives and disincentives associated with property rights. It keeps the whole process of the market moving toward the aggregation of the highest aims sought by market actors, right? If you, if you misallocate the capital and you do it in a way that's not profitable, you, you will ultimately get liquidated back into the market and that capital will be allocated towards a higher end. Yeah. And, and again, the, the crazy thing is that this is, it's all your fault, basically. Yes. Yes. Right? yes. You, have, you have the power to aim high and to actually manifest that. And that's the most valuable thing that you could be doing with scarce resources. Right. If you don't, that's your fault. This is it's so interesting because, you know, Peterson talks a lot about responsibility and how important it is in an individual's life, right? Clean your room, uh, shoulder, you know, shoulder up under the responsibility of your life, bear as much as you can. But it's equally true at the the fractal level of civilization where we need to maximize the responsibility dynamics in the marketplace which are really expressed in property rights like the more the more inviolable property rights are the more robust society becomes but I, it seems like the problem we've always had is that property rights have always been under the purview of the state, frankly, and therefore the the uh, discretion of politicians or authoritarians, depending on who's who's controlling the apparatus. And that's been that's what's held us back. It, yes, it did hold us back. But one nitpick here: it's it's not that the property right was defined by the state in a bad way, right? It's that the state bureaucrats violated the natural born yes. property rights of right. sovereign individuals. And that is what led to a worse outcome that would have otherwise been because those three individuals were hindered in aiming high and trying to f- succeed. We're back to this point of confusion for me. So agreed completely that these rights we're discussing, they're not government given, right? It's not like it didn't exist and then the government gave it to you because clearly you own yourself, you own the things you infuse your property or you infuse your time with, et cetera. But um, it seems like the emergence of the state was at least partially necessary uh, to scale property rights, maybe? Like that we needed to secure the perimeter around uh the the domain of peaceful trade such that you know people could have access to rule of law and other ways to resolve their disputes you know enforce contract law um 
Am I thinking about that correctly? It seems like it, it was at least in some some degree a necessary apparatus to the scaling of property rights. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, that's the the big question of historical analysis. Um, are the are the is the past a consequence, or is it because of the government definition of property, or despite the government meddling with natural property that we've mm, reached this current state that hinders back to Bastiat's the seen and the unseen? Right? Sure, we you know have cool highways and big cities, but where could we have been? without the violations of property. So, but that's historical analysis and that's, you know, speculation and, and fiction to, to a certain extent, right? We're rewriting history here. But what I can say is that with a, a logical, reasonable proof, uh, I, I can show to you that any forceful, inter any aggressive violation to individual private property rights is a net negative for the economy and for ultimately every individual. Right. Even the and perpetrator. Even the perpetrator. Exactly. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's a parasitic behavior and ultimately the host dies. And then the parasite is that, is that too. Yes. Interesting. Oh, but uh, no, there's also one interesting point here that, you know, in, there are creatures on this planet that are full parasites. You know, they, most creatures on this planet are they simply leech of others. Like there are hmm. billions of bacteria and DNA matter in your body that is not yours. It's only there because you provide the energy and uh, this, these things can feed on you, you know, all these mm -hmm. bacteria and, and mushrooms and whatnot. So, um, but the, I, I think that one, the, the key characteristic of a human, that aspect to, uh, to go back to the paradise, you know, uh, to, to understand the difference between good and evil is that humans have a choice whether to be a parasite or, or whether to be a productive organ. Mm. And there is a choice because we have the reason to extrapolate in the future the different scenarios and to play out how a parasitic behavior will do us in the long run and how a productive behavior will do us in the long run. Mm. And we understand that the productive way is better, period. There's a logical proof and we have reason. That's what makes us. Therefore, everyone can verify this. Right. right? But so many still violate individual property rights. Yeah. And that is a sin. That is missing the target. Yes, yes, yes. So if we're using nature as a guide, what then, I mean, because there are, as you said, there are many, many, many parasites in nature. Is this just something that we're always going to live with or is, you know, because again, if you think of the world on a Bitcoin standard, all of a sudden you've reduced the attack surface for the parasite. Effectively, people are holding at least money in an inviolable apolitical property right. Now, I'm not sure yet how we resolve all the other property rights for tangible goods. Um, where, so how do you see that? Like it, the state is a necessary evil in a way, or how do you view it? You know, to, to pick that Solzhenitsyn line, the, the line of good and evil runs down through the heart of every individual. Mm. And ultimately, the, the, the most dangerous parasites on this planet are certainly humans. Yeah. But it's up to us whether we are parasitic or productive. 
Right. And again, it's, it's so difficult to be productive. Like it's, it's crazy difficult mm -hmm. to be a productive, a profitable entrepreneur. I mean, holy shit, good luck. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's understandable that we leech off of others to a certain extent. Well, because life is damn difficult and yes. you fail a million times more than you succeed. Right. So it's, 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 it makes sense why people steal. It's yeah. the easy way out, right. you know? Uh, and it takes courage and, and conviction to not do that. Mm -hmm. it, it's, and I'm not sure if it takes more courage if you, if you know, about, if you've actually reasoned through it or, or if not, again, it's, it's the thing of, of nations and ignorance, right? What if you just simply never thought about right, life right, in this, right, right, in this right, lens? Right. right. Like, like if, if you're a materialist, you probably haven't, mm -hmm. right? If you're pure materialist and you're just like, I'm, you know, gonna, how much I can get for this much effort, how much I can get for this much effort. You're not contemplating the unseen moral implications of your decisions at all. Oh, yes. Yes. But that's, that's so interesting because the way that we make that decision-making process easier is with a solid pricing system. Right. Yes. Right. When we have a sound money and prices, uh, not just a sound money, a, a free and voluntary market in general, that is much more than just sound money. Then we have a, a, a we can establish a pricing structure that of the pattern of our subjective preferences. And we compare all the potential options that we could do with the most profitable one where other, right. which is good for us, right? Because the more money I have, the more I can spend it on later. So that's nice. But in a sound monetary system, in a free market system, the most, the highest price is the most valued thing. Yes. It's what, what market actors most want satisfied. Exactly. Exactly. So what, when we have a free market and especially a sound monetary system, then the, then the choice or it becomes much easier for individuals to choose the highest value goal. They are right. not being fooled. They, the money is a, a adequate a adequate map of the value structure of the mm. economy. Right. 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 And when with the, when in general, there is an intervention to free and voluntary action and especially an intervention on a free monetary standard, uh, and we have a money by decree, a fiat that is forced on other people, then this changes the pricing structure in the economy drastically, drastically. Uh, again, Kantian effect. Those who receive newly printed money first gain yes. at the expense of others, and they raise their prices earlier, right? right? The, 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 there were the money flows first. Of course, you know, demand goes up, therefore price goes up, right? So yes. those prices get risen, um, more than they otherwise would have without the theft of inflation uh, occurring. So this shifts the pattern of prices and therefore the pattern of values of the macro economy and individuals are fooled into spending their scarce assets into a venture that is ultimately not the highest moral goal that they could have sought for. Right.
Wow, interesting. So it's there's an economic distortion clearly with the price signal, but you could argue as well as you have that there's a moral distortion, right? Or there's there's a divergence between what market actors are voting, uh, what want they're voting to get satisfied via their buying and selling decisions versus what the actual price expresses. The price, you're introducing noise to the channel where the price becomes more a function of policy than supply and demand. Uh, And that's an interesting way. I never thought of it exactly that way that, so we each have our own hierarchy of preferences or values in mind, right? And, And at any moment we're peeling off the top of that hierarchy and the action we're taking is expressing our highest value in any moment. And the, the money, uh, specifically a hard money or honest money or sound money pricing system is aggregating all of those individual hierarchies into one effectively. And that is the market, right? It's saying, here's here's the distribution of who wants what done, who, who wants these want satisfied and how much, you know, how much they're willing to pay to get them satisfied effectively. But when you break the medium, you break the message <laughs> effectively. Yes. And the pattern gets distorted and it's yes. no longer an accurate map. Right. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Okay. So maybe just to tie this back into this idea of just acquisition, um, this is one thing that threw me for a loop was he was talking about to homestead, I guess, land. It's like, it's not enough. This gets kind of mechanical and tricky because it's not enough to land on a new continent, walk a 50 mile perimeter and then say everything inside of that bubble. I just walked is mine. Like you actually have to be actively using it. Uh, Maybe you could just, get into a little bit of the nitty gritty and how this just acquisition is uh, expressed and then how it's defended, you know, does it expire? How does, what is, what does property look like in this libertarian lens? Yeah. So as you say, just walking around a circle and claiming everything inside the circle to be yours is, is ludicrous, right? Because that excludes so many people from using all these potential resources uh, from the get-go and you didn't even use them, right? You just walked around them. Uh, that doesn't really make sense, right? Can you walk around the city <laughs> or, well, in, in any case, but um, then um, the other thing is, does it expire? And when you continuously use a good it does not expire, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're still using it. The, the shirt I'm wearing right now it doesn't magically despi- expire mm-hmm. to no longer be my shirt because I'm still wearing it. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, and I've justly acquired it, right? Nothing, nothing changed. The situation did not change. Um, of course, it, it does expire as soon as I voluntarily and contractually give it away to someone else, right? right? For whatever reason that is, probably because I got paid for it, right? But then my property in this shirt expires, and it merges over into your the shirt now being your property right? mm-hmm. because I I've I've given it to you, mm-hmm. um, as, and the more interesting question is what would happen you know so we're on this island, um, for the first homesteader comes there you know uh, he's the first to use it uh, he intermingles his labor with the land uh, he cuts down trees he builds a cabin right and and he lives there for a while mm-hmm. and 
now he leaves after a couple of years, right? And and he's gone for an unknown amount of time, mm-hmm. right? And all of a sudden, a, a new settler comes there, right? And and he sees that hey, there there is a house here, right? So um, the question is, can he still homestead this house, right? Can can he acquire the the just property of this house um, uh, without contractual agreement, mm-hmm. right? That's the question. And the simple answer is no, he cannot. Mm-hmm. He cannot homestead it because this is not a natural resource. This is already a scarce asset, having been intermingled with labor, right? Having been created into some higher level good. And he didn't do the work, right? Mm-hmm. It's not his. He did not create it out of the natural given resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the first way to acquire a just property right title. And the second way is by contractual uh, uh, ownership transfer, property mm-hmm. right transfer. That didn't happen. So thing is, he does not own the cabin. Now, can he use the cabin? And the thing is, who's going to stop him? Right. right. And is there going to be any conflict? No. Economics is about solving conflicts over scarce resource allocation. Mm-hmm. Right. Here we have a, a scarce resource that's no longer in the in the natural state of things. It's it's a man-made production good. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's unused, so there's no potential conflict. Mm-hmm. So sure, the second homesteader can come in there and and use it. Right. Because there's no one else to make a claim to it. Right. Mm. And then arguably, if a third homesteader would come along, right, and say, hey, I want to use that house, then the second homesteader is like, no, no, I'm actually using it right now. Right. Um, and I have a better claim to, to this than you do. Right. Right. And, but if the first homesteader would come back, you know, and, and be able to prove, no, no, I built this. This is mine. I was just out shopping. Right? Yeah, right. Get the fuck out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, then he has a, a obviously better claim. And yes. in that conflict over who of these two guys can use, well, the first one who built it obviously can. Yeah. Right? So th- this is just to highlight uh, economics is about conflicts over scarce resources. Mm-hmm. And there's no conflict. There's no economics. Right. Right. So that okay, that's a great example. Then in in that event that the original, the first homesteader comes back and says, "Hey, second guy, get out of my house." Who arbitrates that conflict in the libertarian philosophy? Is there a free market for arbitrators? Because it, typically we'd consider that an, an appeal to the state. Uh, that that kind of. That's a big question to ask now already, um, mm-hmm. but the the gist of it is, he doesn't he doesn't need to justify it to anyone, right? It's well, his, but he, he has to take it, prove it somehow, doesn't he? Because if he just shows up no. and the second guy is like, "How do I know it's yours?" How? Well, because it's mine, and uh, like uh, you know, it's when, when someone walks into your house, uh, when when you walk into your house late at night, and all of a sudden there's a robber sitting on the couch, you know, mm-hmm. claiming that the house is his. Mm-hmm. You don't have to prove him jack shit. You right. get him out of your house, and if necessary, you will probably apply force and and even shoot him, maybe lethally. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, you don't need to prove anything because this is naturally yours, right? And he has no authority to to doubt that claim. You know, um, right. you're a bit, in a sense innocent until proven guilty, right? It's as long as you have actual, as long as you have a solid claim to this good, you're innocent of applying defensive 
force right. against an aggressor, right? When you're, and this is again, the, the f- feminine concept of non-aggression goes yeah. hand in hand with the masculine concept of self-defense. Yes. You cannot have one without the other. Right. Right. What it means to not aggress others means that if someone aggresses you, don't take shit, but fight back. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense. But who then, like you said, innocent until proven guilty. And if we, if we're getting ahead of ourselves and we should save this for later in the book, let me know. But my question is who, like, say you walk in guy, looter, robber sitting on your couch you tell him to get out he refuses you shoot him lethally and then maybe his family decides that hey that was his house and they're they're making some claim that you killed him in his house when in fact it's yours where does that conflict roll up to is it does it roll up to some arbitrator or judge or court system in the libertarian world or what happens Oh, okay. So let, let's spin that further. We, we, you know, A owns a house. He contractually sells it to B. And then B sits in the house. A comes back a day later. Maybe he forgot that he sold it, right? And then shoots him thinking that it's still his, right? Mm. He, the, the actual ownership changed. So it's by B now. Mm-hmm. And the guy who came back now shot him. And this would again be a unjust um, uh, murder, like mm-hmm. called out murder. Like there, there was no reason to do that. And, you know, later Rothbard also goes into proportionality of punishment. So that's something to, to keep in mind still, but right. Um, don't and don't shoot somebody for here. stealing bubble gum. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, the, the heirs of the victim, um, inherit the self-defense right of the victim. Mm. Um, so to say, um, and, Arguably, that that happens implicitly, um, but maybe you actually need to write that down in a in a testament, so to say, mm. right? To to explicitly t- tell someone what to do if someone kills you, and what to do with the guy who did it. Right? Uh. If you would write something down like this, that would limit the inheritance of the self defense law, right? So if you would write, hey, if I, uh, you know, die in a car crash with a drunk driver, for example, you know, some of those morally edgy cases, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't, don't prosecute him. Like it's cool. Uh, sucks, but Hey, uh, yeah, like yeah. F- just as an example, right. Then the, the heirs would not have the just right to seek revenge against, uh, this person because they did not inherit that right. 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 Uh, because it was explicitly dem- denied. Yes. Um, but but arguably, as long as this is not given, the the heirs do inherit um, a, a, a a retribution cost. It's it's th- it's tough to say with murder. It's more obvious to see with with bubblegum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if uh, if someone steals a bubblegum and then the person dies, well, the the heirs of that person would have inherited the bubblegum. Right in the mm. vo- vo- voluntary inheritance contract that was signed, set up, and now these um, th- these heirs have the just property right title in the bubblegum, mm-hmm. right, and therefore can apply force to retrieve the bubblegum, or actually two bubblegums, as, as we might go into later. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So, okay, well, it gets it, it seems like it could get really 
morally murky though, because then you're saying the heirs of the murdered uh, home invader would then kind of have the right, assuming the house was contractually sold, right? And there was a mistake made, they would have the right to come and kill the murderer and then, and the Bible talks about this, right? Where you get into these cycles of blood vengeance between families. It's like, oh, you killed my brother. I killed your sister. You killed my sister. I killed your mother. And like, it just goes back and forth for generations. And the law was introduced, which again, I guess is from on, you know, presumably from the monopoly on violence. It says, no, here, here are your rights um, to kind of stop these cycles. So I, I think there is an interesting point to differentiate between ethics and morals. Oh, and yes, ethics yes. are the governing principles that govern for everyone. And especially with punishment, I would argue that you have a ethical right for a maximum punishment. Mm -hmm. right? So when someone steals your bubblegum, the maximum that you can do is take two bubblegums from him. Right. You cannot shoot him. Right? Right. Because that does proportionality. Exactly. That's yes. the proportionality concept. Yeah. Right. Um, but you can choose. You know, so, so this is this is the maximum that you can do. But you can choose to be benevolent and to not retaliate. Right? Mm -hmm. And probably in many cases, that's going to be the reasonable choice, best for everyone. And it's also going to be the moral choice, mainly by many belief structures like Christianity having uh, you know forgiveness as yes. a core virtue. Right. Right. So when someone stole from you, especially, you know, when you understand the reasons why he did it, you know, when you can put yourself, when you can mimic yourself into his situation, right, a fundamental human trait again, um, and you understand that in his situation, you probably would have done the same, yes. then you will probably have mercy on him. And realize that he's just as wretched of a soul as you are, hmm. and that it would probably be a nice thing to not continue the, the cycle of violence, even though you have a natural right to it, you choose to not um, utilize it. Right. Interesting. Um, okay, so this is something I want to dive into more because it does get complicated, and the book gets a bit complicated uh, on, on a lot of these topics. but. We'll save it for next time. I, I do just want to ask one, does he get into, because this is something I'm thinking about a lot and it's probably come through in this conversation. Does Rothbard get into what the industry of violence and protection from violence, which is typically the natural monopoly of the government, what that looks like in the libertarian world? Does he get into that in this book? Yes, he he does in general on numerous occasions. Probably the best to read about is in Man, Economy, and State, especially in the in the uh, final part, uh, Power and Markets. Okay. Um, but one other explicit book about this is from Hans Hermann Hoppe on um, the myth of national defense. I believe oh, okay. um, is the title of it, uh, and he is arguing very much in the Rothbardian tradition um, that for a for such a valuable good as physical security and the upholding of property rights, having a, I mean, having someone as incompetent as the government to take care of that, uh, mm -hmm. with all the inefficiencies that we can logically prove socialism has, yep. uh, 
backfires. Uh, Bob Murphy also did great research on the First and Second World War and about how much government incompetency in the warfare industry itself delayed the outcome that they were hoping for. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. But on, on the other hand, um, th that's more of a utilitarian argument. You know, the government would be worse at providing the security uh, than free individuals would be. Uh, but I'm not even make. that's not my main argument. My main argument is that if we value property rights, then instead then giving someone the the authority over someone else's property rights in order to uh, to to defend the concept of property rights is a contradiction in and of itself. Mm. Like, we give we're afraid of someone stealing from us and and raping our children so we mm -hmm. give that one person the right to steal from us and to rape our children that doesn't make sense you know that's that's not how things work so, so if you whole... value property rights then the the institution of a state defined as the entity that uh, uh, has a legal um uh, theft via taxation and uh, the the monopoly uh, of, of violence in a circle a certain area to yeah. to be the monopolist of providing any type of service um that is in definition a, a institution that violates individual private property per definition every time right so they cannot uphold private property they're neither good at it nor does it fundamentally make sense interesting so this i mean calls into question the very origin story that I have in my mind, at least of government, which is kind of this natural monopoly on defense of capital assets once we settled down and became agricultural. But what you're saying is that it's more like it's an, it's always been an imposed structure, right? It's never, it's not like free market actors decided, Hey, let's set up this monopoly on violence to protect ourselves from local intermittent violence. I mean, you know, one point is that the today's nation state is what a couple hundred years old and humans mm -hmm. are much older than that. Right. So, yes. and even before then, you know, monarchy or, or other systems of uh, aggression, so to say, um, have different flavors and each of them have different trade-offs. Right. And, yep. and maybe a monarchy has a superior way to handle with private property disputes among its slaves, mm. right. Than a democratic nation state has. Right. Uh, probably you can make that argument again, Hans-Hermann Hoppe, democracy, the God that failed. It's a pretty solid argument. I, I think it's correct. But that doesn't mean that that a monarch thief is better or or, or is not bad. He's still stealing. Yeah. You know, he's just, he says he's a king and has a, 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 the, the, you know, he, he's the only one and he doesn't get elected. He just has God appointed or something, yeah. but he gets to steal from you. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it doesn't change anything, right? He, he steals. Right. Uh, and the thing is, the same theory applies for non-state aggressors, right? The petty thief, uh, a highway robber, right? These still break private property and the same logic applies to the state. It's just kind of weird that the state gets to break private property and sell it to you as a pitch that it's good for you, <laughs> while the, the robber baron and the, the highway robber has at least the dignity and courage not to be that ridiculous uh, in, into your face. Yes, yes, yeah. There's a whole, the arsonist uh, racing to save you from the fire he started type of thing, right? It's very duplicitous. Breaking your legs and handing you crutches. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, this has been an excellent discussion. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm looking forward to just 
going further in this book. I know we're not moving very quickly, but it's a good thing we're not in a rush. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, Max, yes. thank you again. Well, thank you very much, Robert. Uh, it's it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, it's good to have serious conversations. Uh, and you know, there's usually not enough of them. <laughs> so I'm glad we're getting together to have them. And I hope that the people listening enjoy it too. Yes, I think the world needs more conversations like this. So thank you.